Welcome to Animals Today, your home for series talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. All of us who call ourselves animal activists or animal advocates share a common concern, a concern for animals and the suffering caused by humans on animals. Chances are, if you're listening to the show, you're working in your own way to reduce animal suffering on this planet. Maybe you rescued your last dog or cat from a shelter or rescue organization. Or perhaps you signed a petition to stop the cruel practice of seal hunting. Or you made a conscious decision to try and remove meat products from your diet. Whether you realize it or not, if you took any one of these or countless other actions to help an animal or animals, you are part of the animal welfare movement. Have you ever wondered when the animal welfare and animal rights movements began or what precipitated the existence of animal advocacy? Despite tremendous growth in animal advocacy throughout the years, this belief that animals exist for human use dates back tens of thousands of years. Like any belief system, it's deeply rooted in our history and culture and cannot be changed overnight. Eight to 10,000 years ago, people first began the practice of herding, significantly changing the relationship to humans. Humans began owning and confining animals such as sheep and goats for food. 2,000 years after that, people started owning cows. Domestication of animals for food was an essential element in the progress of human civilization. Millennia later, Mahatma Gandhi, the leader of India's non-violence independence movement, proclaimed, The greatness of a nation and its moral progress can be judged by the way its animals are treated. But before Gandhi, Enlightenment-era philosophers offered their own formulations about animals in society. And I'll just touch upon a few of them here. We'll dive into this in a bit more detail in an upcoming show. Well-known philosophers Immanuel Kant and René Descartes both theorized that animals did not have equal consideration with humans because animals lacked consciousness, reason, and autonomy. Kant and Descartes subscribe to what is known as indirect theories, theories that have at their basis the requirement that one should not harm animals, but only because doing so indirectly does harm to a human being's morality. 17th century philosopher Descartes, who is often referred to as the father of modern philosophy, believed animals could not reason and were incapable of feeling pain. They were akin to mechanical robots who were not deserving of compassion like humans. Immanuel Kant's work has been discussed throughout animal advocacy movements to this day. While he did not believe that humans had any ethical obligation to animals, he felt cruelty should be avoided simply because cruelty toward animals would lead to the development of cruel habits that humans would inflict on one another. Possibly the most animal-friendly viewpoint was that of the 19th century philosopher John Stuart Mill. He believed the right action was that which minimized pain and suffering and maximized pleasure for everyone involved, referred to as utilitarianism. His philosophy applied to humans as well as non-human animals. As an example, a utilitarian might claim that the treatment of millions of experimental laboratory animals is okay if billions of people benefit from it by gaining better health. Given the recent visibility of animal rights issues in media and law, one might think the animal rights movement was new. However, 2,500 years ago and further back in history, there are recorded cases of respected people urging others to show compassion for animals. Since its earliest recordings, the animal rights movement has always been tied in with vegan living as a means of eliminating or minimizing cruelty to animals. The spiritual teachers of India who rejected the herding culture were the earliest animal activists that we know of today. They committed to minimizing cruelty by interfering with animals as little as possible and allowing them to live out their lives as natural beings. They taught and practiced a vegan lifestyle. 
The most prominent of these would be Mahavir, a significant teacher in the Jain tradition, and the Buddha, both of whom taught their students compassion through meatless living. Both Jainism, which is traditionally known as Jain Dharma, an ancient Indian religion, and Buddhism, which encompasses a variety of traditions, beliefs, and spiritual practices primarily based on original teachings of the Buddha, taught and practiced the teaching and understanding of Ahimsa. Ahimsa is a consciousness of nonviolence. The essential belief is that violence toward any living beings is unethical and brings suffering to the victim, the perpetrator, and society. It's inspired by the premise that all living beings have the spark of the divine spiritual energy, and therefore to hurt another being is to hurt oneself. Ahimsa has been related to the belief that violence has karmic consequences. Both Jain and Buddhism practice nonviolence. Adherents of these practices were not permitted to own animals or harm animals. The 1860s is when organized animal protection really began in America. Citizens launched independent nonprofit societies for the protection of cruelty to animals, SPCAs. In several cities. However, unfortunately, after World War I, many of these initiatives lost momentum. Animal protection saw a revival following World War II. Treatment and use of animals began to come under greater scrutiny. Ideas about what had always been regarded as humane treatment of animals started being challenged. Once again, attitudes about the relationship between humans and non-human animals began to change. In the mid to late 1940s, scientific institutions had turned to municipal shelters to get cheap dogs and cats for research. In fact, scientific institutions devoted effort to get animal procurement laws passed, allowing them to gain access to animals from municipally owned shelters. These laws usually passed without difficulty. In the early 1950s, the animal rights movement took on one primary cause, the issue of pound seizure, which was rooted in existing animal shelter principles and policies. In pound seizure, dog and cats in shelters were sold or released for use in research. Animal advocates took issue with the increase in amounts of money spent on biomedical research, which in turn increased the demand of laboratory animals, many of which came from shelters. Most local humane society officials felt that forcing organizations to provide animals for research violated their mission and ethics. However, leaders within the American Humane Association tried to negotiate with the biomedical research community rather than outright oppose them. This was likely because some key management positions in the American Humane Association were also salaried staff executive positions, so there was some conflict of interest. Salaried executives had an interest in maintaining their jobs, which meant not making themselves controversial figures in the communities they served. This fueled anger among supporters of the American Humane Association and caused discord within the organization. Ultimately, the American Humane Association backed away from this issue altogether. In 1951, the Animal Welfare Institute was formed, and in 1954, the Humane Society of the United States was created. Interestingly, both of these organizations were formed by people who were formerly associated with the American Humane Association. The many social justice movements of the 1960s and 1970s paved the way for the evolution of the animal rights movement, which then developed into two different approaches to animal rights, the utilitarian way of thinking and the rights theory approach. The 1975 publication of utilitarian philosopher Peter Singer's controversial book, Animal Liberation, again changed the conversation about human treatment of animals. It impacted what people ate, what they wore, and how humans perceived animals. Singer argued all creatures have a right to, quote, equal consideration because they can suffer. 
in the book, he writes about the cruel practices used in factory farming and the horrors perpetrated on animals used for laboratory testing. Speciesism is the term Singer used in his book to describe the exploitation of animals. It refers to an attitude of bias against a bean because of the species to which it belongs. He argues that it is discrimination no different from racism or sexism. Essentially, it allows humans to view animals as inferior and in doing so justifies regarding animals not as individuals, but as objects and means to fulfill our human desires. Many consider Singer's book the benchmark or Bible of the animal rights movement and the foundation upon which much of the movement's ideas are based. However, another branch of animal activists believe animal liberation's utilitarian viewpoint was too conservative. In 1983, philosopher Tom Reagan applied deontology, a branch of philosophy that explores moral duty to animals. In his view, any being that is a subject of a life is a being that has inherent value. Reagan's book, The Case for Animal Rights, took the position that animals possess intrinsic moral rights as individuals with complex feelings and experiences that extend beyond their ability to suffer. To this day, the book is still considered a classic of moral philosophy. With the 1990s came the Internet, which made it vastly easier for animal advocates to connect with one another, form groups, advocate, and network animals in shelters and rescue groups. Transport groups could easily connect shelter animals in one state with prospective loving homes in another. A cute video of a prancing baby goat at a small sanctuary could be viewed by millions worldwide. Anyone, anywhere could join in and help the cause even from their own homes. However, as with every other change in society, it has come with a downside. The hyper-connected internet world has made it easier for people who are looking to acquire free or cheap animals to sell, abuse, and fight, for game hunters to organize, and for videos depicting animal abuse to be shared. But it's essential to reflect on how much has been gained throughout the centuries. Animals now have their place, not only in our homes, hearts, and families, but continue to gain protection and rights in the legal system. Nonprofit animal welfare and animal rights groups have proliferated from bare bones locally acting ones to national and international complex corporate organizations. The Animal Welfare Act and the Endangered Species Act are cornerstones and provide broad protections, although not nearly broad enough, for innumerable animals. Private ownership of exotic animals is restricted, and more and more cities have banned traveling circuses which use animals. Courses in animal law have become commonplace in law schools. I can go on. Cruelty-free cosmetics are highly sought by consumers and will soon be the standard worldwide. Research methods which avoid the use and abuse of animals are coming online and becoming increasingly accepted as better and less expensive. The explosion of tasty and healthful plant-based food items, both in the market and in restaurants, is huge and permits anyone to easily begin eating fewer animal products. The dog and cat overpopulation problem, with its attendant euthanasia of unwanted animals, is almost licked. Most dog racing tracks have closed, the cruelty of horse racing has finally been exposed, and many more. Listeners know there's still so much work to do, but now is a perfect time to get involved and take action, or at least to do a little more than you're already doing. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, you're listening to Animals Today. For more than 60 years, the International Society for Animal Rights has been consistently fighting the battle against dog and cat overpopulation 
and advancing animal rights and law. ISAR is committed to saving animals' lives through ISAR's annual Worldwide International Homeless Animals Day. To learn more about ISAR's programs, please visit their website at www.isaronline.org. Now, on a few occasions in the past, we've talked about the importance of creating a trust for the care of your companion animals in the event you die before they do or you are no longer able to care for them. But how about care of your companion animals in case of an emergency? Now, I'm going to give you an example. So my high threshold for pain has gotten me into trouble a few times in my life. This latest episode taught us that every guardian needs a contingency plan in case you or members of your family suddenly become unable to make it home and take care of your animals. Now, I've been going about my usual activities of being an eye surgeon and leading, advancing the interests of animals, that's my nonprofit animal welfare organization, when a pain in my lower abdomen gradually and persistently made its presence known. Now, I did my best to ignore the ache, which waxed and waned a little bit, secretly wishing that it was nothing and that it would just go away through the power of ignoring it. But try as I might, it was not to be, and the pain became pretty severe at the end of work one day. And this is, by the way, this was while Peter was out of town at a medical convention. So I drove myself to the local emergency department to get a quick evaluation on my way home. Well, an inconvenient situation developed when the emergency room physician reported that the CAT scan of my belly showed the largest inflamed appendix he or anyone there has ever seen. Though I protested, there was no way they would allow me to leave the hospital. In fact, I had a successful emergency appendectomy a few hours later. Here's the thing. With Peter being away, we needed a trusted friend to go into our house to let the dogs relieve themselves and to feed them and the cats. We were lucky on two major accounts. Okay, first, my friend happened to have our house keys and thankfully was in town and knew what to do in terms of our animal care. She had taken care of our companion animals in the past, so she she was familiar with the routine. Secondly, even though I was in a lot of pain, I was conscious and clear-headed enough to contact her and make a plan. Now, this was a close call because we had never specifically planned for this kind of situation. I mean, what if my friend didn't answer her phone before they took me to surgery? Or or if she did answer the phone, she didn't have the keys. Or I became unconscious before provisions could be arranged. Well, my dogs and cats would have suffered. So bottom line, before a crisis occurs, create an emergency plan in case you or your family members cannot get home to care for your animals. So this might include travel emergencies, natural disasters, accidents, or illnesses, right? Secondly, make sure a trusted neighbor or family member or friend has a key for access to your home and that he or she is familiar with and comfortable with your animals, including what they like to eat, you know, diet restrictions, how they relieve themselves, and any special needs they might have. Third, write all this information on a card for your wallet or purse to carry with you and with your other emergency contact information. And finally, post a visible list at home and give a copy to your emergency and long-term caregivers that includes your veterinarian's phone number and the special needs or your special care provisions for your animals. Your animals are the ones who are gonna be suffering, so plan ahead before a crisis occurs. 
I want to now welcome back to the show Darlene Kababel. She is the president of the Colorado Wolf and Wildlife Center. Welcome back to the show, Darlene. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Darlene, a few years ago, we interviewed a gentleman who rescued wolf-dog hybrids, and he was very strongly against that practice of breeding them or or creating them. How Mm -hmm. big a problem is wolf-dog hybrids these days, and does the center have a position on them? And, you know... To me, these individuals, irresponsible individuals, if you ask me, who want their dog to have a little wolf in them, it's really fraught with risks, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It can be, and that's that's a topic that is... It can be very controversial in so many ways, and our stance pretty much is wolves should be wolves and dogs should be dogs. And the reason for that is because so many so many problems, a lot of people have uh, problems sometimes owning an, just a domestic dog, let alone owning one that may have some wolf in it, and then it starts to have some wolf behavior, and then it gets out of control, and then that you know, that person or that family can't take care of that animal for whatever reason, and now they need to find a home for it. And the the problem with finding a home for it is, um, first of all, if they do take it to any shelter uh, and you open your mouth and say, I have a wolf, and you use that word wolf, wolf-dog, wolf-hybrid, um, within 24 to 48 hours, they, they usually will euthanize that animal because a lot of states, a lot of counties uh, are not allowed to adopt them out mm. for one reason or the other, depending on you know where you're at. And a lot of people call them wolf-hybrids. That's actually an incorrect term. It's actually wolf-dog because a hybrid wouldn't technically be able to reproduce. So the, the proper word is a wolf-dog, uh, but a lot of people do call wolf wolf-hybrid. So I'm, gonna, I'm going to relate to them as a wolf dog, um, and it is estimated at 250,000 that are born year uh, every year. 80% won't even reach their third birthday, and there again, the reason for that because uh, some people can't deal with them for one reason or another. And like I said earlier, they take them to a shelter or they try to find a sanctuary. The, the problem with sanctuaries is every single sanctuary in the United States is full beyond capacity. And I mean, look at your dog in rescues out there, right. and, and you know, your shelters and your humane societies and, and non-kill shelters or whatever, they're full because we have a lot of, unfortunately, irresponsible people in a disposable society to where they can't, you know, they don't, ha- something happens in their life and, oh, just give it away or, or take it to, get rid of that problem and, and you know, life goes on. And uh, so many wonderful, wonderful animals that are euthanized every single year because somebody didn't take the responsibility uh, when adopting that animal, buying that animal, whatever. Um, so with the wolf dog, it is very popular because a lot of people like to own a piece of the wild. Or if you look at the wolf dogs or the wolves, they're beautiful, majestic animals. So sometimes people want to ha- have that little bit of wild you know, next to them. You can buy these animals anywhere from a few hundred all the way to a few thousand depending on who the breeder is and how much money they want to make out of it. And I've seen such exotic mixes that's like, oh, my gosh, that animal's been extinct for, you know, <laughs> that buffalo wolf for X amount of years or whatever, but the more exotic that they can put a title on it, the more money they can make out of these animals. The only true, true way to really find out if your, your wolf dog has wolf uh, traits is to do a DNA test. What happens is, say, if someone does get a true wolf dog, has a lot of wolf behavior to it, um, they oh, I'll raise it as a puppy, and it'll become a house dog. It's still a wild animal. That's the problem. Back, and then all of a sudden, now you've got this vicious animal, and then the wolf gets a bad name. 
Darlene, just like having an exotic animal as a pet, I feel it's unfair and almost inhumane to have a wolf dog hybrid as a pet. I mean, you just don't know how much internal confusion, if you will, these animals are experiencing. They have wild characteristics. They have domesticated characteristics. They must experience some level of confusion as to what they are and how they should behave. You know, you're so right on that. If it's still part wolf, truly part wolf, they need space. They need hiding places. They, they have instincts that you're taking that away from them. Right. And it's, it is that, too. They can become neurotic. Uh, they can, you'll see them to where they do neurotic behaviors um, because they're stuck. They're, they have no natural, you know, mental stimulation. And, and without that, it's, that, is, that is cruel. Yeah, it's bad enough that we have these breeders out there breeding purebred dogs and designer dogs at a time when our shelters are at maximum capacity and at a time when we're killing five to six million dogs and cats every year in our country's shelters. So now we have these same sort of selfish individuals breeding for profit, creating an animal whose genes are a mixture of wild and domesticated, and we're creating an animal that we're really not sure how content or happy their lives will be. And as you mentioned, many of which will end up being relinquished to a shelter where they will automatically be euthanized or they'll just be abandoned or dumped. Darlene Kababov, president of Colorado Wolf and Wildlife Center, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks. back to animals today. So about a year ago, Peter, I gave you a quiz on songs with an animal in the title. Remember that? Yeah, I do. And you did pretty, pretty, pretty good. Today, same sort of quiz, but we're going to focus on, ready, Beatles songs. Mm. Beatles songs, titles containing the name of animals. Yes. And I would expect you to get every single question correct. You know, this is dangerous because I should, but I probably won't. So here we go. What is the title of the song? Here's your hint. This bird is famous for his magnificent and soothing voice. Oh, Blackbird. 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 Singing in the dead of night. Mm. Do you know what album? Oh, boy. Blackbird came from Revolver? White album. White album. Oh, yeah, of course. What year? Okay, happy birthday, White Album, 1968. Very good. Okay. Who sang it? McCartney. Very good. Okay. A large marine mammal with flippers and large tusks. Yes, I am the walrus. Very good. Do you know the year it was released and where? Mm. <laughs> no, uh, how about... Uh, 67. 67 is correct, and it was featured in the Beatles' television film, Magical Mystery oh. Tour. Hmm. I am he, as you are he, as you are me, and we are all together. Yeah. See how they run like pigs from a gun? See how they fly. The name of this animal is derived from a Greek language, and it means eight-footed. Yes, Octopus's Garden. Yes. Album? Album Abbey Road. Yes. Year? 67? 69. Oh, darn. Sung by whom? Oh, Ringo Starr? Yes. Yeah. What was Ringo Starr's real name? Oh, Ringo St- uh, Starkey. Yep, Richard Starkey. R- Where would you like to be? Under the sea. With whom? With, with uh, in an octopus's garden. With whom? 
<laughs> with you. Thank again, you. I guess. <laughs> okay. <laughs> These farm animals are extremely intelligent, and some behavioral experts believe they are even more intelligent than dogs. Pigs. Yes. Stirring up the dirt. Little piggies. Little piggies. Mm. Always have clean shirts to play around in. <laughs> Released on what album? How about White Album? Yes. Do you know who wrote the song and what it was about? Wow. Who would write that? Not George Harrison. I would say John Lennon. George Harrison. (laughs) As social commentary on class and corporate greed. Hmm. Everywhere there's lots of piggies living piggy lives. You can see them out for dinner. With their piggy wives. That's right. That's so funny. I'm learning so much. You know, it's sort of embarrassing, you'd think. We're you know, Beatles fans. We should know this. I know, I know. I had to YouTube some of these to hear them and figure these out. Mm, mm. Two other songs I know of from the Beatles with birds in their title. Do you know what they are? Actually, three. Three more songs with birds in the title. Birds in the title. Your bird can sing. And your bird can sing. Yes. <laughs> yes. Boy, you're a stickler. <laughs> and that was... Oh, that was from Revolver. Yes, 1966. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, Blue Jay Way. Oh, yeah. Written by George Harrison, released on Magical Mystery Tour. And the third one, the full complete title of the song, Norwegian Wood, This This Bird Bird Has has Flown. flown. Very good. Album and year? Oh. It's an album you haven't mentioned so far. Okay. Rubber Soul. Yes. 66. 65. Ah. Next question. These are nocturnal mammals. Some might consider them to be nuisance animals since they can get into trash cans. Checked into his room, only to find Gidgeon's bug. Uh, oh, Rocky Raccoon. Very good. What album? Oh, uh, Rocky Raccoon is, I don't know. White. Mm-hmm. Okay, there are four official breeds of this animal. They're named the French blank. Old English, blank, Australian, blank, and the American, blank. Hey, Bulldog. Yes. That's a good one, too. This animal that is less than a year old is sometimes referred to as a foal. Yes. A pony. Yes. Uh, something like, uh, hmm. Dig a pony. Dig a pony, yeah. Album and year? I, mm, let it be? Yes, 1970. Yes. Yes. Didn't they perform this during their famous rooftop concert? Oh. It ends, everything has got to, oh, I just want to Make you sing. (laughs) This does make me want to sing their songs, but then I'll be confirmed by anyone who's listening that I can't carry a tune. Okay, that's okay. Everything has got to be just like you want it to. Because, remember? Yoko has entered the building. Do you remember? <laughs> Do you remember? I, I don't. I don't really. I. I don't. I'll have to go on YouTube also. And that's the last word of it. Because. Do you remember it now? I don't. Okay. It's not helping. <laughs> Everybody's got something to hide except. Except for me and my monkey. Yes. Album. Okay. White album. Yes. Yeah. This was a great beginning. Remember this? Yeah, that was a good one. Come on, come on, come on, come Ooh. on, come on! It's such a joy. Come on, it's such a joy. I know. Okay. Yeah. I wonder what that song is all about. I don't know. Yeah. You just want me to stop singing. <laughs> okay. What song of the Beatles opens with the sound of a rooster? Oh, uh, Good Morning, Good Morning. Yes. Album? 
That is Sergeant Pepper. You got it. Yeah, that was a good one. Inspiration for the song "Good Morning, Good Morning" came to John Lennon from what? <laughs> Boy, I don't know. Breakfast cereal. I don't know. Yes. Oh yeah. Yes. Okay. Good guess from a television commercial <laughs> for Kellogg's Corn Flakes. Yeah, that's good. What Beatles song refers to Henry the Horse? Don't know. Being for the benefit of Mister oh, Kite. Okay. I have to play that in my mind. I guess it's in there somewhere. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are some people of who Of course, really... Henry the Horse oh, yeah. dances the waltz. <laughs> <laughs> okay, God. <laughs> what were you going to say? I was just going to say there are people who like study this stuff, and they've got books, and they're always, you know, I'm, I just, I never went that far. And that explains my B-minus performance I'm giving you here. And that was from Sgt. Pepper's. Okay, here's a great one. Which song, written by Paul McCartney on the White Album, was about Paul's beloved dog? On the White Album? You know, it's funny. I think makes me think of Jet that he did with Paul McCartney. Right, that was that's different. Dif- different hills. Yeah. A lot of dogs. And at the time, most people assumed McCartney was indirectly singing a message of love to his longtime ex-girlfriend, Jane Asher. Oh, I don't know, Lori. Go ahead. Martha, my dear. Really? Oh. Yeah, it was about Paul's English sheepdog. Here's one of the verses. Take a good look around you. Take a g- I'm not going to sing. Yeah. Take a good look around you. Take a good look. You're bound to see that you and me were meant to be for each other. Silly girl. So that... Words the last chorus. Uh-huh. Martha, my dear, you have always been my inspiration. Please be good to me. Martha, my love, don't forget me. Martha, my dear. Mm, well. That's deep doggy love, isn't it? Wow. So Paul McCartney's first pet, an yeah. old English sheepdog puppy that he named Martha. She was born June 16th, 1966. This is what Paul said about Martha. She was a dear pet of mine. I remember John, meaning John Lennon, being amazed to see me being so loving to an animal. He said, I've never seen you like that before. I've since thought, you know, he wouldn't have. It's only when you're cuddling around a dog that you're in that mood. And she was a very cuddly dog. Wow, that's going deep, Lori. Isn't wow. it sweet? It's, it's sweet, yes. So the next time you listen to Martha, my dear, you'll think of Paul's English yeah, sheepdog. I will. Here are three songs with animals in the title that I haven't heard of, Peter. Free as a Bird. You know this one? Yes, that's a good one. Oh, really? Yeah. This was released as a single on December 4th, 1995, as part of the promotion for the release of the Beatles anthology video. Free as a Bird is a song originally composed and recorded in 1977 as a home demo by John Lennon. In 1995, a studio version of the recording, incorporating contributions from Paul McCartney, George Harrison, and Ringo Starr, was released as a single by the Beatles 25 years after the breakup. Mm. Three Cool Cats. Never heard of that one. Yeah. 1958 song. 58. Written by Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller. The Beatles manager, Brian Epstein, personally chose this and the 14 other audition numbers from the band's Merseyside Dance Hall and Rock Club repertoire. The recording was included on the Beatles Anthology 1. The Beatles cover version featured George Harrison's vocals and Pete Best on drums. Oh, good old Pete Best. And finally, Leave My Kitten Alone. Hmm. Oh, I, he's uh, the kitten is his girlfriend, I guess, right? I think so. Yeah. 1959 R&B hit, written by Little Willie John, Titus Turner, and James McDougall, first recorded by Little Willie John and covered in 1960 by Johnny Preston. The song is also the 22nd song on the second disc to the Beatles Anthology 1. 
There you go. Okay, so uh, what's my grade for this? Not as good as you had predicted, I think. No, it's not as good as no, I predicted, but no. it makes you want to listen to Beatles songs, doesn't it? Does, it? it does. Okay. Thank so let's you. Go, let's okay. go do that. Thanks. Okay. Peter, did you know December 4th is International Cheetah Day? Hmm. So I thought I'd talk a few minutes about cheetahs. Peter, did you know the cheetah is the fastest land animal knew, in the world? I knew that. I knew. Reaching speeds up to 113 kilometers per hour, which is about 70 miles per hour. Mm. And they can go from zero to 60 miles an hour in only three seconds. Of course, their slender, long-legged body is built for speed. And they can make these quick and sudden turns in pursuit of their prey. And they have exceptionally keen eyesight. Oh. When they're running, they use their tails to help them steer and turn in the direction they want to, like a rudder of a boat. Usually their chases are over in less than a minute, right? So they're not long-distance runners, they're sprinters. So here's a question for you, Peter. How can cheetahs be distinguished from other big cats? And I'll give you multiple choice, okay? A, by their smaller size. B, by their spotted coats. C, by their smaller heads and ears. Oh, that's tricky. I'm going to go with C. Actually, all of the above. Oh. They also have very distinctive tear stripes that stretch from the corner of the eye to the side of the nose. Cheetahs only need to drink once every three to four days. Cheetahs are diurnal animals, thus more active during the day, and therefore they do their hunting during the light hours. They rely on the tall grasses for camouflage when hunting. Sadly, and like so many of our majestic, beautiful animals in the wild, their numbers are dwindling. In 1900, there were over 100,000 cheetahs across their historic range. Today, an estimated 9,000 to 12,000 cheetahs remain in the wild in Africa. And another very interesting fact, did you know that unlike other big cats, cheetahs cannot roar? Oh, that's interesting. However, they, they purr mm -hmm. on both the inhale and exhale like domestic cats do. Yeah, I wonder how they use that purr. That's interesting. Does it make you want to hug a cheetah? <laughs> no, it does not. <laughs> so there you go, Peter. International Cheetah Day, December 4th. Don't go away. More with Animals Today right after the break. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner from Animals Today, and this is your Animals Today Minute for today. It's kitten season, and you may come across a litter of young kittens. Your first reaction will be to rescue them, thinking they've been abandoned. Stop. It's much more likely that the mother is off hunting for food or looking for a safer place to nest, or was just frightened by you. If the kittens are clearly not in distress and the nest is not in danger, leave them alone for the mother will likely return. But check again in a couple of hours, and if they're still there, then please, yes, rescue them. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner, and that was your Animals Today Minute for the day. Welcome back to the program. We recently had the opportunity to visit veterinary neurologist Stephen Hansen in his office because Susie, our aging Ridgeback mix, seemed to be getting weakness in her hind legs. 
Now, fortunately, Susie's doing okay for a senior dog, but this got me and Peter talking about neurological problems that can occur in our companion animals. So what do you think might be the most common medical problems or diseases a veterinary neurologist sees? I want to welcome to the show veterinary neurologist, Dr. Stephen Hansen. Hi, Dr. Hansen. Hi. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Stephen, can you first tell us what is a veterinary neurologist? Yeah, sure. So a veterinary neurologist is a veterinarian who, after veterinary school, does a uh, specialty training residency. So generally three years of specialty training followed by um, board examinations. And through that process, one becomes board certified, um, a board certified specialist in neurological disease. Um, Most veterinary neurologists are trained not only in medical neurology, but also surgical neurology. Uh, because the veterinary field does not have a neurosurgery specialty like um, the human medical field. Right. So uh, most board-certified veterinary neurologists treat neurologic conditions such as seizures and balance problems and also perform spinal surgeries, uh, sometimes intracranial surgery. Wow. So what are the most common problems a veterinary neurologist treats? Yeah, of the things that we see, by far the most common conditions are disc disease and seizures. Um, disc disease is a very common condition that doesn't always require evaluation by a neurologist, but it is a common disorder. How is this diagnosed, and what are some of the symptoms? Well, the first thing to look for is weakness or pain because what's happening with disc disease is that one of the little cushions or intervertebral discs between the vertebrae of the spine undergoes degeneration. And when it degenerates, one of a couple of things can happen. Sometimes it just slowly bulges up and it pinches the spinal cord, which can cause weakness and pain or in other cases, a disc can very suddenly rupture where it impacts on the spinal cord and causes sudden paralysis, either of just the back legs or all four legs. Is it difficult to distinguish between disc disease and, say, arthritis or dysplasia of the hips? There's some overlap in the symptoms because both of those things can cause symptoms such as difficulty rising, difficulty going up and down stairs. But there are certain particular things that we look for in a neurologic examination to see if there is an actual neurologic impairment. Once we're suspicious of that, uh, we'll oftentimes do tests such as x-rays or MRI to actually make the diagnosis. Which dogs and cats get intervertebral disc disease? I mean, are certain breeds more susceptible? Any, uh, any dog can get intervertebral disc disease, generally um, that acute rupture with the sudden paralysis occurs in younger dogs, generally smaller dogs, and especially the ones with longer backs. So dachshunds, for instance, uh, Pekingese, Shih Tzus, other dogs with short legs and long backs are predisposed to that sort of disc degeneration. The more chronic or gradually bulging disc problems we see more often in larger and older dogs. 
And how about prior injury or specific activities? Does that cause disc disease? Well, sometimes um, certain discs can protrude just from wear and tear. So sometimes with larger dogs that do a lot of running around over years, their disc will kind of experience wear and tear and start to bulge. Um, With the little dogs with a sudden disc rupture, that's a condition that can start to smolder without any symptoms whatsoever, and then the disc becomes like a time bomb. And one day the dog may jump off the couch or maybe running around the house or it may just be walking across the kitchen floor and suddenly that disc can rupture. So it doesn't take any sort of trauma um, or any activity out of the ordinary to set that disc rupture off. Can we prevent this, Dr. Hansen? Generally not. You know, the it's um, dogs have a genetic propensity to develop this disease and uh, like I mentioned, things like jumping can kind of put the disc over the edge and actually cause the rupture. But that rupture can certainly occur even if a dog you know, never jumps or goes up and down the stairs. So um, basically there's, there's not much that can be done to prevent it. In the small dogs, I like to not encourage them to do things that involve jumping. So we have to let a dog be a dog, and they have to run around and play. But I like to have people avoid actually enticing their dog to jump up and greet them or jump on their back legs, which would put their spine in more of an upright position and put more stress on the discs. Right. What's your approach to treating intervertebral disc disease? Well, in a lot of cases, it only takes medication. So um, sometimes we'll use anti-inflammatory medications or pain medications, and those things are especially helpful in the short term. So sometimes a disc will have kind of a flare-up, and we need to give medication for a couple of weeks, and then the inflammation subsides and we can get them off of medication. Um, Sometimes when longer term therapy is needed, we also use acupuncture, which seems to be good in helping with pain control and sometimes allowing us to get by with less of the pharmaceuticals. When the disease is severe enough, though, it requires surgery, and especially a dog who is paralyzed from a disc rupture. That's actually an emergency. So if a dog were to be suddenly paralyzed, it's essential that it gets to a veterinarian right away and then uh, probably referred to a specialist and get the testing and surgery done. The good news about that is most dogs that are paralyzed from a ruptured disc eventually walk. And so with timely treatment, the prognosis is quite good. Mm. Do cats get disc disease? They do, but a lot less commonly. Yeah. So I I would say for every uh, couple hundred dogs that we see with a disc rupture, we might see a cat with a disc problem. Thank you very much, veterinary neurologist Dr. Stephen Hansen. I'm sorry we didn't get a chance to talk about seizures. We'll definitely talk about that on an upcoming show. Thanks again. My pleasure. And this is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals.